we will be spending the next five weeks reading Plato's magnum opus, The Republic. Considered by many to be the founding text in the history of political philosophy, which is to say, reasoned inquiry into politics and the right order of society. Reading the Republic will carry us almost to the end of the semester. We'll actually end with two short Platonic dialogues, the Apology of Socrates, in which we read the defense speech that Socrates gave when he was put on trial by the Athenians in 399 BC, and finally the Crito, which depicts Socrates in prison before his execution. But the bulk of our time, from now until May, will be spent getting to know Plato's Republic. The Republic is a fitting way to round out our semester of studying the Greek polis. We've been studying the polis in history, in action, in motion, as it were, by reading about the speeches and deeds of real-life cities in the histories of Herodotus and Thucydides, and reading about the speeches and deeds of imagined or half-imagined cities in the dramatic works of Aeschylus and Aristophanes. We took some time earlier in the semester to read Plutarch's Lives of Solon and Lycurgus. We did so in order to see what you could call the political or social or cultural foundation of Athens and Sparta that these great lawgivers laid down, to see the regime that they established to see the way of life that they prescribed for their citizens, so that we could better understand the real actions and words and thoughts of the cities and statesmen of Athens and Sparta, as we read about their resistance to the Persian invasions, about their growth in power and prosperity, and finally, as we read about their wars against one another. Now, now that we are familiar with political life as it actually occurs, with Greek history in the 5th century BC as it actually happened, and with the poetic reimagining of the origin and apocalypse of political life in Athens, courtesy of Aeschylus and Aristophanes. Now, with all this preparation, we can begin to examine the idea or the ideal of the polis. We can consider, with Socrates as our tutor, the proper place of the political order, the city and the regime, in human life as a whole. And finally, keeping in mind the great accusation that Aristophanes leveled at Socrates in the clouds, we can come to understand the relationship between the philosopher and the city. The philosopher, the new hero that Plato has memorialized to rival the great Homeric heroes. The man devoted to the pursuit of wisdom. The city, the political community, that both has a claim on the philosopher, as on every citizen, as his home and as his nurturer, and yet, as we have already seen, often falls short of his own personal aspirations of rational living, and, as we will see, may go so far as to be hostile, even murderously hostile, toward the philosopher. Before discussing the opening scene of the Republic, I want to talk about three things. First, the context of the conversation in the Republic, second, the cast of characters who appear in the dialogue, and finally, the title of the work. First, the context. Plato was a young man during the final years of the Peloponnesian War, and he wrote the Republic some decades after its end. But the conversation 
that is depicted in the Republic takes place sometime during the Peloponnesian War. And Plato sets the dialogue in a specific location and populates it with specific characters in order to call to mind the very end of the Peloponnesian War. How did the war end? Well, Athens continued to fight for nearly a decade after the, their defeat in Sicily. During that time, Athens descended into civil war, at one point even changing their form of government in order to convince Alcibiades to return to them, during which time he led their forces to a series of victories, until he didn't, and then they cast him out again, and finally were defeated by Sparta, who at that point was receiving significant aid from the Persian Empire. Although some of Sparta's allies demanded that the city of Athens be destroyed and its citizens killed or enslaved, Sparta decided to spare the city while imposing an oligarchic government on it. This was a true oligarchy, a true rule of the few, in fact, of only 30 men. The reign of terror by these men, who had become known as the 30 tyrants for their bloody rule, was cut short only by revolution. A band of Athenian exiles invaded the city and overthrew the 30, restoring a broad democratic form of government to Athens. Why is all of this important for reading Plato's Republic? Plato builds into the dialogue literary details which are politically and historically charged in ways that his original audience would have easily recognized. First, let me make a general note about Plato's literary details. These details are there not just to amuse us or to draw us in so that we pay attention to the really important abstract philosophical argumentation so that once we've grasped those ideas or the argument, we can cast aside and forget about the literary aspects. No. Plato's manner of writing is somewhere between what we would call a philosophical treatise or argument and a work of dramatic poetry or literature. The literary details in a platonic dialogue have something like the weight of the setting, narration, characters, and so on in a play or novel. Plato's literary features, what you could call the action or the drama of the dialogue, illuminate and in turn are illuminated by the argument that is depicted in the dialogue. We'll need to be attentive to the dramatic aspects of the dialogue as we make our way through it. For now, I want to point out how the location and the cast of characters in the Republic are tied to the end and the aftermath of the Peloponnesian War. First, a note about the location. The location of Plato's Republic, of the dialogue, it takes place in the house of Cephalus, in the Piraeus, the Piraeus being the port of Athens, which is connected to the city by the long walls. If you go back to book one of Thucydides, Thucydides tells us that the long walls were built by Themistocles against the wish of the Spartans after the Persian Wars. By connecting Athens to the sea, the long walls enabled Athens to exercise a naval empire throughout the Peloponnesian War and made feasible Pericles' strategy of disregarding the Peloponnesian invasions of the Attic countryside during the war. In other words, the long walls enabled Athens to be a naval power, and in that way to do an end run around Sparta's uh, acknowledged dominance uh, in, in 
on land with, with infantry warfare. Because the Athenian navy employed a great number of rowers, and the rowers tended to be poor, the port of Piraeus was traditionally a center of support for Athens' democratic regime. And again, because it was a port, it had a large population of foreigners with connotations of novelty, newness, and openness to the unusual. You may start thinking now about the opening paragraph of the Republic in which Socrates is returning to Athens from the Piraeus, and in the Piraeus he had been seeing this uh, uh, a new religious festival, and he's, he's later told to stay in the Piraeus so that he can see this new uh, torch-lit horseback riding, something novel going on with sort of relay. Anyways, so much for the, well, yes, uh, a little bit more about, about the Piraeus. As I had already mentioned, after Athens is defeated in 404 BC, the Spartans imposed on it an oligarchy called the 30, known as the 30 Tyrants. 10 of the 30 served as the 10 in Piraeus. So there were 10 of them. 10 of the 30 were in Piraeus. The other 20 were up in the city. Note that there are 11 characters in the dialogue. It's either Socrates plus 10 others, or after Cephalus, the old man, departs, there are 10 in the Piraeus, including Socrates. In any case, a prominent leader of the 30 was Critias, a sometimes associate of Socrates, uh, and in fact a cousin of Plato. Less than a year later, Athenian Democrats, using the Piraeus as their base, overthrew the 30 and reinstated democratic government. And soon after the restoration of the democracy, a general amnesty was granted for various crimes committed during the rule of the 30. It was under this restored democracy that Socrates, only a few years later in 399 BC, would be tried and sentenced to death. It's generally believed that an unstated reason for the trial and execution of Socrates was suspicion due to his association with men like Alcibiades and Critias, and perhaps due to his own words as well, that he harbored anti-democratic, thus implicitly pro-oligarchic sympathies. So the dialogue is set in the Piraeus, and that has with it connotations of both the uh, the democratic resistance to the 30 and also Socrates's possible connections in the mind of, of later Athenians with the rule of the 30 themselves. Now a word about the cast of characters. There are a number of platonic dialogues that feature conversations that happen in front of an audience. Uh, the Republic is one of them, but the Republic is the only one in which the names and thus the precise number of the silent spectators are specified. In other words, the people who are there serving as an audience the whole time, never speaking up even once. Uh, this is suggestive due to the significance of the 10 in the Piraeus because of the, the number that this, this comes out to. All of the characters in the Republic are his real historical persons. Uh, Plato himself would have been a very young man at the time of the conversation, but two of his brothers feature very prominently in the dialogue. So if you look at the opening pages of Bloom's translation, he has a dramatis personae page, and I'm, I'm just going to run through and comment on a few of them. We've got Socrates, the philosopher, of course. Then we have Glaucon, who's one of the brothers of Plato. Uh, he's the companion of Socrates, and at the beginning of the dialogue, he's uh, at the beginning of the dialogue. 
uh, and he's an interlocutor with him uh, for most of it. Uh, another brother of Plato is Adamantus, uh, who, who is prominent in much of the dialogue. And at the beginning, though, he's a companion of Polemarchus, serves as a kind of intermediary between Polemarchus and, and Socrates. Polemarchus is the son of Cephalus, right, the old man at whose house in the Piraeus the conversation takes place. Polemarchus's name means war leader. Uh, he, in real history, he was executed by the oligarchy, by the 30 tyrants, probably because they wanted to gain access to his family fortune. His father at that time, who was very, very old in the dialogue, was already dead. Uh, and then Polemarchus was executed by the 30 in order to, to gain access to his, his wealth. Cephalus, as I already mentioned, is the father of Polemarchus. His name means head. Uh, he's a wealthy Medic. Medic is a term for a resident alien of Athens, uh, who who is originally from the island of from from Sicily, specifically from Syracuse. He had been invited some time ago to settle in Athens by Pericles, and he made his fortune as an arms manufacturer. Thrasymachus is another major character in, in book one. He's a sophist. He's a traveling teacher of rhetoric in the bad sense, sophistry, uh, from Chalcedon. His name, Thrasymachus, means something like bold in battle, or even rash or reckless in battle. In the dialogue, notably, he likely sees Socrates as a, a rival, uh, a rival in teaching the young men who are present for the conversation, some of whom may in fact be his students already. And the last of the speaking characters is Clytophon. He shows up very briefly in book one, but in, but in a really important passage. He's a relatively minor Athenian politician. Uh, he's the only character who speaks without speaking to or being spoken to by Socrates. And I think that's significant if you, if you look at what he actually says. He's, he's clearly an associate of Thrasymachus, uh, but he takes in a way, an even more radical position on, on justice uh, or injustice than, than Thrasymachus does. Uh, Plato has a dialogue named after Clytophon. It's Plato's shortest dialogue. It's really worth reading. It's only four pages long. Um, in that dialogue, Clytophon blames Socrates for encouraging people to pursue virtue and then failing to give them a really clear, actionable answer to what justice is. Uh, so if you've ever had the experience of being attracted to Socrates because he's talking about such fine things and such a great way of life, and then being disappointed in him or repulsed by him because he doesn't give you sort of concrete uh, to-do list uh, for how to become more virtuous, well, Clyde, you're, you're not the only one. Clytophon experienced that frustration, uh, and the, the Clytophon is this really fascinating short dialogue in which Plato gives him a chance to speak. There are also four non-speaking characters, uh, Carmantides, who we know very little about, uh, Euthydemus, who is a brother of Polemarchus, right, and so a, one, another son of Cephalus. Lysias is another brother of Polemarchus. He is a, a famous Athenian orator who, after the democracy is restored, uh, prosecuted the oligarchs who were responsible for uh, executing his brother. Uh, and finally, Niceratus who's actually the son of Nicias, the Athenian statesman and general, whose namesake is the peace of Nicias and who dies during the Sicilian expedition. Uh, Niceratus 
is also executed by the 30, possibly for his wealth. So looking back over the cast of characters, we have Socrates, we have Glaucon and Adamantus, the brothers of Plato, uh, Socrates associating with Glaucon from the opening, from even before the dialogue begins, and then coming to associate with Adamantus and his crew of friends uh, through events I'll, I'll discuss shortly. Uh, and then we have a number of characters who will call to mind, whether they speak or not, knowing they're, they're there, will call to mind uh, in, for the audience the civil strife, the conflict between democracy and oligarchy, uh, the conflict about what form of government Athens should have uh, in, the, in the minds of, of Plato's audience. A word now about the title of the Republic. Republic comes from Latin. Uh, the Greek title is politeia. Yeah, it's, it's that very word uh, that I used very often earlier in the semester, politeia, the Greek word translated as regime or constitution, the order or form of a city, a polis, or as we will learn in the course of this dialogue, in Socrates' view, politeia, regime, could also be used to describe the order or form of a soul, a psyche, a soul, not just a city, but also an individual soul. In in the later books of the Republic, books eight and nine, uh, we'll read a description of five different regimes of city and the corresponding regimes of soul. Those are aristocracy, democracy, oligarchy, democracy, and tyranny. Uh, we call Plato's Republic the Republic after Cicero's De Republica, uh, which is Cicero's own dialogue, somewhat modeled off of Plato's dialogue. But the translation, Republic, can be misleading. Republic in English refers either to a generic commonwealth or state, closest Greek equivalent of which is actually polis, uh, or to a specific regime or form of government. In ancient usage, one in which the city was understood as a race publica, a public thing, thus in some way governed by its own citizens, and in modern usage, republic being a regime in which the people are ruled by their elected representatives. Plato's title refers not to a specific regime, but to a political or psychological regime ordering or constitution in general, the very idea of giving an order to a city or to an individual soul. That is the title. That's what that's the theme of the dialogue as announced by the title itself. Um, and our translator Alan Bloom has a has a very helpful uh, first note, his his end note, the very first end note at the end of the book on page 439 uh, discusses this. The, the Republic also has a, a subtitle. It's a traditional subtitle. It's not given by Plato himself. And that subtitle is On Justice or On the Just. Uh, this is a sensible subtitle to give because the driving question in the conversation is, well, twofold. First, what is justice, the nature of justice? And then secondly, even more pressing, especially for the young men in the dialogue, should I be just? <laughs> What's the relative desirability of living a just life rather than an unjust life? Obviously, we have to settle the, the definitional question of what justice is before we can answer that. Uh, but this is not in any way an abstract 
uh, dialogue, an abstract question on the table. There will be times in the Republic when it feels very abstract and when we go to very abstract places, but the whole conversation is oriented by really the most practical question of all, the most immediately pressing question of all, which is, how should I live? Is is it actually desirable for me to live a just life or an unjust life? We're going to need to answer the question what justice is in order to answer that question, but but the orientation of the discussion is actually towards answering the question, why should I be just instead of unjust? Why would it be better for me to be just than unjust? So the title, The Republic, again, Politeia, that, that term we've been talking about since, since we read Plutarch and Solon and Lycurgus, uh, and, and Socrates is going to investigate Politeia on both a political and an individual or psychic level in this dialogue.